Hey, this is Ronnie Martin, and you're listening to my chapter as the story grows. Welcome to the next chapter of As the Story Grows. I'm Brian Patton. This week, I'm excited to have Ronnie Martin join the podcast. As I mentioned to Ronnie, this is actually the second time I've gotten to interview him as he chatted with me for my fanzine 20-ish years ago, just after the White Songbook released. Ronnie's been on my list for the show ever since I took over as host, and I want to thank Jeff Cloud for connecting us. This was a fun chat as Ronnie talks about his love for synthesizers and electronic music, the struggles of creating his unique brand of pop music in a punk rock world, and the creative ins and outs of Joy Electric's later catalog. We also dive into Ronnie's side projects, plastic music, and what the future holds musically. So I hope you guys enjoy my chat with Ronnie Martin. This is actually funny enough. The, actually, the second time I've interviewed you, mm. I had a fanzine, and I interviewed you just an email back and forth questions when White Songbook came out. Um, uh, okay, so man, well, it's, it's been a while. That's that's what I meant to do earlier. I came up to my computer and I was like, "What was I going to look up?" I was going to try to find it on the Wayback Machine, but that's mm-hmm. all, it's all good. It's all good. So yeah, that was a well, long time that's ago. Exciting to talk to you again, then. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, Matt, there's so much to get into. There's so much to talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess we'll just start. How has uh, the last year in COVID been uh, treating you? <laughs> oh, man, that's such a great question. Um, well, you know, oddly enough, I, I've never, I still haven't gotten it. Um, so that's been unusual. I would have thought I would have had it by now. My yes. wife had it. Uh, most of my friends have had it. And oh, I just, man. I just somehow avoided it. But yeah, just uh, the day to day. Um, just, you know, all the same challenges, uh, I think doing well, all things considered. And, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, I've definitely learned some things. It's taught me a lot and, uh, you know, just anxious for it to, to be over like everybody else without discounting just the devastation that it's caused and the life lives that have been lost. And, uh, but, um, yeah, just glad for the, uh, sort of the upward, kind of progress we're seeing right now and, and hoping that, you know, we just keep seeing some, uh, keep getting some, some potentially good news. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I get my first vaccination shot on Thursday. So, Oh man, that's so great. I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. I know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so from the right now, let's throw back. How was, uh, what was child like, like for you? Oh man. Um, what was childhood like? Uh, it was, um, well, it was, it was a stable environment. I think, <laughs> you know, um, my, my, I have an older brother and sister that are about a decade older than me. Wow. So we had sort of a, it's sort of a two, almost like a, for lack of a better way to say it, almost like a two family scenario. So <laughs> by the time I was six or seven, older brother and sister were out of the picture. I had a younger brother and a younger sister. So I kind of became the de facto older, oldest brother, you know, <laughs> kind of for the rest of our growing up years. Yeah. And so it was, it was sort of this dual situation. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, challenges like any family, but, uh, you know, um, loving mom and dad, um, and, just, uh, yeah, I, you have to be a little more specific. What got you into music? Mm. I mean, that just, that really came from, uh, 
just, uh, you know, my mom more than anybody else. So we, uh, we lived in a uh, kind of a, a rural part of Southern California growing up for the majority of our time growing up. And we had to commute everywhere. So everything was an hour away. And uh, so we would, uh, we would hop in the Ford Econoline van. And um, this is, uh, you know, I'm old. So this is back when we had eight tracks in, in the uh, <laughs> van. And um, so mom would uh, just buy a lot of music. A lot of it was sort of the Christian music of, of the day. So yeah. we were, we were kind of inundated with uh, Larry Norman and Keith Green and Daniel Amos. And um, that was just how I got into listening to pop music, really. Yeah. And, uh, Cause all of that was pop music. Yeah. And so just uh, listening to music, singing along to songs, learning songs, and just loving, loving it and yeah. getting interested in sort of the, gosh, I wonder what would it be like to write a song like Keith Green and, yeah. and then wanting to do that, wanting to learn how to do that. And then my parents eventually buying, buying me a piano, starting me in piano lessons and um, just kind of learning some of the basic basics behind, you know, creating, playing, crafting music. And then eventually years and years later into my teenage years, just saying, I don't want to play other people's music anymore. I don't want to play classical pieces or, or yeah. whatever, but I, I want to just, I want to write songs. So I want to learn how to write and, uh, and just beginning to pursue that, you know, with, with abandon in some ways. Yeah. What, what led you to transition from a piano player into synthesizers and, and electronic music? Yeah. Well, I think it was, it was probably a natural, you know, if you're a, if you're a, young kid in the eighties, you know, it was, it was kind of a natural next step. So I'm, I'm playing piano, but I'm hearing Vox Humana from Daniel Amos and there's all these weird sounds. And so obviously I'm probably going to be a little more interested in all of those, you know, strange and ethereal and creative sounds um, than I probably am going to be sort of the basics of piano. That was me at least. And then, um, you know, beginning to hear other artists like New Order and Depeche Mode and the Pet Shop Boys and just thinking, okay, I want to make those sounds. I want to write that kind of music. I want to do those kind of chord structures. I want to have those kind of melodies. And um, the synth was just the avenue to create just this kind of this really, for me, was very strange sounding music, you know, this European kind of, you know, dance influenced oriented music. I, I just hadn't grown up with hearing a lot of music like that. And when I was first sort of introduced to it, it was just very it sounded very foreign to my ears and it was immediately, uh, I was just drawn to it. I don't know why. Cause I'm, I'm not really a dancer. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't like, in the, I didn't like, I wasn't like a club guy. So I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, into the club scene. There's nothing like that, but there was something about all of those sequenced sounds where they were all interlocking. And um, it was just kind of mesmerizing and captivating and some just, I don't know. It, it's just something that, that really uh, captured me. And I was like, I, I want to, I need to make music like that. I have no idea how to do it, but it would sure be interesting to learn how to do that. But then, you know, write songs. So. Yeah. Was that your catalyst? I mean, before you started doing bands with your brother, were you doing like synth or piano and like bands through high school or junior high trying to let, just figure it out? No, I, I never did that until uh, until I started the first project that I brought Jason into. Um, so before that, it was just, I would just be, I, so I was, uh, you know, I had a piano and I would be trying to write songs. And then I eventually saved up enough money to buy my first synth, um, which was sort of the first of these workstation synths yeah. from the 80s where you could you could kind of create a, an entire song in the sense. So, you know, I had drum sounds, I could do a bass line, you know, and I could have all, you know, all of my leads and all of that. But it was just this new, very complex and sort of magical, you know, world for me. And so I, I as I was learning how to do that, you know, I, I kind of brought Jason into that and I said, hey, look at these bands in Europe. There's only two guys in the band. We don't, we don't need to have a drummer or a bass player. We can just do it all. And I can do it all and you can play back up. That's how we did it. You know? That's awesome. That's that's cool. Was that Morella's Forest? 
That was no, that actually no. was uh, that was a band. Our very first band was uh, it was we called it Two Lads. The Two Lads. Yeah, that's what it was. And then Morellis came a little, little, little bit after that. Yeah. Yeah. Does it is it weird to you that people are so like intrigued by that Morellis Forest album? Like Jeff Cloud is releasing it on vinyl. Like, is it weird that people are so like we got to hear the Lost Martin record? <laughs> oh man, yeah. Um, it's really sweet, actually. Um, it's it's flattering. Um, and I don't know if they'll feel that way after they finally hear it. <laughs> we'll have to have another conversation about that. But it was, uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 uh, you know, I, if if I love an artist, I always want to hear their early work. Sure, um, yeah. Fa- I'm more fat. I'm probably more fascinated by an artist's early work than I am their later work because I, I really like I like the rawness. Yeah, of hearing, of hearing the birth of somebody's like initial ideas, and I like really lo-fi music too. I don't like really highly produced music, so I, mm-hmm. I like stuff that's that just doesn't sound that great. I've always been really attracted to music like that, and um, so again, people are going to get a, a dose of that with uh, the Morello's record for sure. I think that's awesome. Uh, Scott Hatch wanted me to ask you how Cloud got those masters because Chris Colbert told him that they were lost in a flood. Oh man. Well, um, actually I, I was the one that got the masters. Okay. It wasn't anything I did. <laughs> um, the, uh, the owner of the label that we recorded the album for was a label called narrow path records. And, uh, the, the, uh, the owner of the label was a guy named Greg Sostrom and he wrote me last year and he said, Hey Ron, it's been, a, it's been a while. <laughs> How are you? I said, Hey Greg, you know, and he said, Hey, so I was, I was, you know, I, I, it was something along the lines of I was cleaning out, you know, a storage space that had a bunch of the old, you know, Neuropath Records memorabilia and tapes and what have you. And I found the Morellos tapes. And he said, if you want them, they're yours. Um, just give me an address and I'll ship them to you. So I said, absolutely. Oh, wow. So he shipped them to me. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I got a hold of Jason and we chatted about it. And we said, well, let's see if we can let's see if we can just digitally transfer them. So we had to send them to a place that had to bake the tapes and go through this whole process. Yeah. It was like this whole complicated process of, (laughs) but they were able to, uh, they were able to, I think, save most of it, the majority of it. And so we got back most of the songs and, um, and uh, just went from there and it just felt like, okay, this happened. It's finally the right time to, uh, to release it. We had a, uh, we had a cassette copy of it for years that Jason uh, transferred to digital and even like did a, did a mastering job on, which you know, sounded okay for what it was. Yeah. Um, but to get the tapes back and to actually have that, you know, the original tapes, it was, it just felt like this was the catalyst to finally release it. So. the transition or delineation for you in between the various projects from Morella's to dance house to rainbow rider? Well, you know, it was, there was a lot of complications with some of those things, you know, and we were very young, we're teenagers and, you know, my heart was always into really just doing pure electronic music. Mm -hmm. Morella's really started as the result of, you know, one of the things you lack, um, if, you know, if you're just a solo guy like me doing electronic music is there's not a lot of collaboration. So there's not a lot of, there's not the joy that you get of being in a band and playing together in the same room. Yeah, It's more of something you're just crafting, you know, on your own and which, you know, there, there's, there's some really, there's some benefits to that. And there's some things obviously I like about that. But at the time when I was, you know, 18 years old and um, you know, uh, just, 
you know, working on electronic music, but then also learning how to play the guitar. My brother's learning how to play the drums. We have a friend who plays bass. And it's like, well, let's let's start jamming out some tunes, you know, with that configuration. And um, before you know it, you're doing that. And you're actually, um, it's actually a little more fun because we're collaborating <laughs> and we're playing together and it's live music and we're starting to play some shows. And um, there was definitely more interest in what we were doing, you know, with, with that kind of material than I, I was able to generate with just doing electronic music at the time. So, um, so it kind of transit. So I was still doing all that while we transitioned into Morello's Forest and then Narrow Path Records goes belly up before the record could get released. And so that record gets put on the shelf. And then I'm still making electronic demos and then Blonde Vinyl Records comes along and, we're, and they want to they release the electronic stuff. And so it just, the whole, there was all this flip-flopping, yeah. you know? And, um, and so in a sense, it was like, well, whoever wants to help us, you know, we would love to be helped, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, it just things kind of bounce back and forth until we, we, uh, you know, kind of morphed into eventually into, into tooth and nail and everything happened with that, you know, but yeah, I don't know if that answered your question at all, but. I remember on the picture book documentary, you said that I don't remember how the name Joy Electric came about, but you were unhappy with it. If you knew it was going to be like this 20 year career, what led to that name? I really loved, I always loved the name Joy Division. Mm -hmm. Um, There was an electronic band out of Europe called Sun Electric, S-U-N Electric, just Mm -hmm. some random sort of ambient kind of thing, which there was a lot of that stuff going on in the, in the, uh, in the early nineties. And I think I just combined those two names and uh, (laughs) it was something I didn't even give much thought to. I had a couple of other names that, um, it's going to sound like I'm just saying this, but I'm not, I don't remember. (laughs) And when I presented, um, I presented Brandon Ebel, the owner of tooth and nail with these three names. And the first name that I threw out there, I said, joy electric. And he loved the name so much that he said, I don't even want to hear the other two names. Oh, man. <laughs> and I said, well, I go, I think that's my least favorite name, though. Can I just <laughs> the other two names? He goes, nope. He goes, in fact, in fact, I'm only going to sign the project if it's Joy Electric. Oh, man. He got all extreme about it. So I said, okay. And uh, so it was a name that was I thought was kind of silly. But it ended up really kind of fitting with the, the project, ultimately, at least in the, at least the early material, really reflected the name well i think yeah yeah how'd you meet brandon well gosh this is where you get into some of that tedious history so between some of those projects and as i was uh kind of forming joy electric i produced a record by a band called the echoing green it was their first album and they were on a label called frontline records and um brandon worked for frontline records Mm -hmm. before before he formed Tooth and Nail. So uh, I was doing the record for the Echoing Green. Frontline Records heard my demos. They offered me a deal. Brandon said, basically, wait, I'm starting a label. I would like to work with you. So don't sign with Frontline. (laughs) Something of that nature. And I'm like, yeah, but Frontline's this established label and they've done all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, but you'll be so much happier if you stay with me because I love all your music. And so I ended up up passing on the, um, the Frontline deal. And um, which if you would have told me that I would have passed on a frontline deal, if not even a few years before that, you, know, you would have, you know, I would have told you, you were crazy, but um, there was so much energy and yeah. excitement surrounding tooth and nail, especially, you know, we were there from the very beginning. And, um, and, and I really liked, I liked the idea that he liked, he was very diverse in his musical tastes. And I knew he was primarily seeking to be sort of a hardcore slash punk slash you know, more like rock and roll label, but I love that he was like, there was no question that he wanted to work with me. And so somebody with that sort of, with that kind of heart, yeah. you know, I really dug that. That yeah. really spoke to me because it's like, Hey, he doesn't really look at certain music as being more important than other music. It was like, man, I, I love that as much as that. And I want to, I want to, I want to, uh, you know, partner with you. So I, I really appreciated that. And so, yeah, that's how it all happened really.
Did you feel uh, less like a black sheep because the label was so diverse? Like it had focused and unashamed, but it had Starflower and Plank Eye and Danielson and like Everdown. Like it had a get a range. Like, <laughs> or did you instant like I'm the synth guy? I'm the black sheep of this thing, even in a diverse field of artists. <laughs> Well, the diversity came a little later, I think, you know, the Danielsons, you know, I mean, I think we were the first black sheep and maybe the always black sheep on the label. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it wasn't really, the label didn't make me feel like a black sheep. Um, oh. Again, the label was, you know, Brandon was always so supportive. I mean, he was just always behind it. And um, it was really, I think it was more of, you know, at that time, when Tooth and Nail started um, and all these, you know, they were introducing those first 10 to 20 bands um, and, you know, everybody starts touring and all these new festivals are popping up. And I think what was hard for me was that the first couple of years, um, we just couldn't, like we couldn't buy our way into any of those things because yeah. of how strange the music was. And again, you know, you, when you consider the time, it's 1994, right? So yeah. it's, I mean, it's the, it's the height of like, man, the eighties are so far in the past. And, um, you know, you know, he, I mean, you're thinking about, I mean, we're thinking of bands like, you know, Green Day and Weezer and, you know, um, you know, all the, all the post grungy stuff is, is really what everybody's listening to. And, um, so we, we couldn't have been more sort of out of sync with what was happening, especially on the radio at the time. And so, um, yeah, I think it was just impossibly bad timing for everything. You know, you look at kind of what music sounds like now and you just go, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> and it's not that I was ahead of my time. It's just that everything has been so locked in the 80s now for so many years. Right, yeah. Like nobody thinks any, I mean, nobody thinks anything of all of these, you know, all of these synth sounds and all this programming. I mean, every band does it. And you just think, well, yeah, it's commonplace now. Um, and it was just impossibly you know, just silly and out of date and things had kind of made a return to sort of that, a little bit of that, that seventies mentality in the early nineties, which was, you know, for something to be authentic, you know, it's going to be guitar driven. It's going to be live. It's going to be heavy. Um, and we were, everything I just described is what we were the opposite. Yeah. Of. Yeah. <laughs> was there a decision with the label that led to you doing a couple releases with BEC, was there something that they thought there was a different lane there or you fit this different mold? There were, you know, I think what was, gosh, there's, it's, it's interesting to try to answer that question. So I've always, this has always been the conundrum, I think for me and Brandon recognized this is I write really poppy songs. Right. Yeah. And that they're, they're very formulaic. Um, they're really centered around a very limited vocal range and melodic range, <laughs> but um, they're, you know, um, they're singable. Mm -hmm. And I think Brandon's frustration was if you would just stop, if your lyrics weren't so obscure <laughs> and your production wasn't so difficult and, you know, maybe too lo-fi and maybe, you know, always just kind of quirky. He said, I, you could just write these. I mean, you, it's just what, it's the kind of songs you write. Because, and I think we could introduce you to a wider audience if you would stop being so difficult and, and arty is how he would <laughs> describe it. And so BEC was his attempt to say, hey, you know, why don't you, why don't you, you know, why don't you kind of minimalize your sound a little bit? You know, I, I'm, you know, keep it, keep it quirky, but, um, you know, find a way to sort of leverage the fact that you just write these very simple you know, um, memorable kind of pop songs. And so BEC was kind of his launch of a pop label. And he said, if you're willing to make some changes and do that, um, why don't we give it a go? And I, I was already thinking that way anyway, for yeah. what Robot Rock was going to be. Cause I had, I had Sugar Rush and I had Monosynth, which were these, just these, you know, a little, you know, similar to what I'd done, but way more, way, you know, way more easy to listen to. And, you know, had some radio potential. And so he heard that and he was like, yeah, let's, let's do that. You know, yeah. let's, let's see what we can do. And um, of course, when you, you listen to those songs now and they were still so bizarre and strange. Yeah. <laughs>
but again, it was a different time. And so EMI had said, they had sort of connected with Brandon and said, we love what you're doing with tooth and nail, but can you give us something that you think could sell to a wider audience? Mm-hmm. Why he chose me for that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> sort of, I'm giving you some <laughs> reasons why they don't really make any sense. Uh-huh. You know, it was like, well, I got super tones. I got this weirdo electronic act. I got, you know, full Zendura and, and, um, and so I think he was just really making an attempt. I, it ended up being our biggest selling record by yeah. far of anything we ever did because there was a lot of money and promotion and marketing that was poured into it um, compared with all the other records. And so on that level, um, we did better than we'd ever done with a record. It still didn't do very well as a record in general. And uh, But that was kind of the mindset behind behind that. And then Christian songs followed that. And, um, and then, yep. I think, which uh, I remember you saying was like, you were overtly like, these are Christian songs, like an audio, like music for a Christian audience. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it was really, I was really a misunderstood album. I think at the time we were, um, I'd gone back to, I was, for some reason I was on a kick with uh, a lot of the old, old Christian artists that I mm-hmm. grew up with. So I'm, I don't know. I really started listening to the altar boys and undercover and Daniel Amos and, and uh, 441 and uh, some of these, you know, these, you know, LSU, these more obscure Christian artists and um, that really had shaped me and my brother. And I just loved how I, you know, I, I even loved lyrically where they went with, you know, how they were, there was just sort of this energy and this youthful exuberance. And I, I wanted to try to capture that. And it was just wrong place, wrong time, like everything I've ever done. And uh, <laughs> it, it didn't really, it didn't go over well. And it was, it, it was it was meant to be intentionally sort of innocent and mm-hmm. maybe even a little you know cheesy in how we would define cheesy you know and um but again it was like a lot of things they do is you have to be a little more you have to be too in on on the vibe and stylistically what i'm attempting to do and historically what i'm attempting to do and it's like how can you expect anybody to get that they don't and um but that you know that shows you uh again it shows you my lack of I like them <laughs> in making records. Yeah. Yeah. I I was a fan of Joy Electric and then I took a uh digital music production class, but the first class was an intro to analog synthesizers. Oh wow. And and it was at that moment that I connected the dots as to what you did and I was like, "Well, he's a genius." Like <laughs> Well, I don't know about I would never go <laughs> wow, that, this is the craft. And I started listening to the records differently. And it was like right at the time when White Songbook came out. So it was like okay, those dots connected of like listening to the music and like the programming and tuning of analog sits. And I was like, okay, I, I get it now. <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a deeper level, that wasn't just like, these are catchy pop songs. It's like the craftsmanship made sense to me. Well, thanks for saying that. But I, I it illustrates exactly <laughs> the point I just made, which is... <laughs> You have to take an analog synth course <laughs> to actually understand what I'm doing. That's not really a great way to be, you know, making pop music for the most. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it, uh, it that's I think that's why it sort of retained its sort of obscurest, yeah, quality. I mean, you know, people that love it love it. Mm-hmm. And most people are just, you know, you, it, to have to explain anything so deeply when it's supposed to be something that's just easy and enjoyable. Yeah. You, you know you're asking for, you know, a lot of complex issues there, right? Yeah. <laughs> what was your draw to, to monosynthesizers and, and analog synths? I don't know. There's there's just something. So for me, you know, I'm not really what's I think what would be what, what might be surprising to a lot of people is I'm not really technically I'm not so technically minded. And um, so analog synths were very simple and they're very yep. in a lot of ways they're you can do complex things with them, but they're very basic. And, um, in, in how, in how to understand, you know, subtractive synthesis. And, um, so that's really what it was for me. It's just these old machines with all the knobs and the levers. And to think that you can create music from that was just infinitely fascinating. It still is actually for me. And, um, so I thought, well, there's two things to it. I just, I enjoyed doing that, making something that I I thought could set me apart. And, and then that was, that was sort of the second aspect of it was just being able to do something that, that, um, where I had no rivals, you know, especially yeah. the scene I was in. And I really liked that. I liked being able to do something of which, you know, I was the only person 
you know, doing it the way I was doing it. And um, so, but, you know, analog since brought me to, you know, the history, you know, so you go back far enough and you, you're all of a sudden now you're, you're becoming really influenced by craft work and the human league and all these bands from the seventies where that's all they had was. Analog yeah. synth. So they, they finally could afford a cheap analog synth for five, six, $700. And that's all they had. So they had a multi-track tape machine. They had an analog synth and maybe like an old drum machine. And so it was like, and so you would, you'd get like a couple of these guys with the tape machine, the synth, the drum box, and they would just make a record. And yeah. I, for whatever reason, that just totally fascinated me. And so I just wanted to do that. I wanted to capture that, that feel of just that, you know? Um, but again, it's, it, it's, it's like us having a conversation about it. Yeah. Like if everybody could have understood it from that, right. they may have said, well, I kind of want to hear that now, you know, but uh, you don't get the opportunity to, uh, to explain it, you know? And I think that was, that was one of my frustrations, I think. Silva, 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 Silva. There seems to be ebbs and flows, especially when you get to the later Joy Electric records of like super poppy records like Hello Mannequin and Otherly Opus and ones where it's a little more outside the box, uh, Ministry of Archers and um, like TikTok Treasury, although TikTok Treasury is pretty poppy still. Um, like, was there ever a, was it just you get in there and you're on the synth? And these are the sounds that are coming out that inspire you, or, or was it focus like, all right, this record, I'm really going to focus on super poppy songs, or I want to try something more experimental this time. Yeah, I was always really, gosh, I was always aiming for something in my head that I feel like I never quite achieved. It's a really good question. It was, you know, I, I made white songbook and it, you know, it's, it's such a strange record in terms of its arrangements and, um, you know, the, the drums are kind of, you know, buried on it and it's, there's so much going on, yeah. you know, it was so layered. And so, you know, I'm exhausted after a record <laughs> like that, you know, and I come yeah. to something like TikTok treasury and I think, okay, I want to, I want to create a concept, but I want to do something minimal and making minimal electronic music is actually harder than, than when you, when you make more of a, a maximal sound, yeah. right? Um, to just say, nope, I'm just going to have a bass line and a drum part and a little sound and I'm a vocal and I'm going to call it a day. You just have, the, especially if you're working alone and you don't really have time constraints or or studio constraints because you have a studio, you just keep going and going. And so um, TikTok was like, let me make a minimal record and let me kind of harken back to some of the early songs with those same kind of chord changes and those kind of melodies where everything is really, really catchy. And then, so you do that and you go, okay, well, that, that wasn't incredibly, that wasn't an incredibly satisfying record for me in some ways. So I want to make these, I want to make these more complex records, but I also want to have them be a little more beat heavy. That leads to Hello Mannequin, you know, where you have all these sounds, minimalistic quality to it, but there's a lot of syncopation going on, which I always really loved. Yeah. And then you finish your record like that and you go, okay, um, I'm tired of all these tiny little syncopated <laughs> drum sounds and and I want to do something big. I want to do something where there's some bass to it and big, big drum sounds. So then you get Ministry of Archers, you know, and I want to do something dark and very, very minor key. <laughs> That's Ministry of Archers, you know. And so I don't know. It's almost like you go back and forth as you're trying to achieve some things, you know, and I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think. Uh, from Hello Mannequin through Otherly Opus, really, it, it kind of achieved three different things I'd wanted to do that I could never do on one record. And so that's kind of kind of spread out a little bit right there for yeah. me. But I think those, those would probably be the three records where I go, okay, you know, it was kind of the pinnacle of sort of that that old school analog programming and sequencing, you know, for me at least. What was the driver and thought behind plastic music? Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, as a, as a soloist, 
you know, for the majority of my work, at least in the studio, you know, I always had Jeff with me on the road, you know, especially in the early days and then other guys with me on the road, but it was primarily a soloist venture. And my idea was, can I create a community? So I, you know, I'd be playing shows and I would have guys giving me demo tapes that were either influenced by me or the bands I was influenced by. And so there had been something that started to grow, you know, and so there were other people making music like this. And so the whole thing for me was like, man, I have such a unique relationship with Brandon and Tooth and Nail. I mean, these artists, I mean, they're, they're, there isn't enough out there. There isn't, there, there aren't, there aren't enough labels and certainly not enough labels that are probably going to give these artists a, a chance. And so I thought, you know, if I could start something and just create a community of artists that were doing something similar, um, then that would, um, you know, I thought that that could be something that could be like a really worthy contribution into yeah. this. So that maybe I don't look so, I don't look like I've just lost my mind, but look, there's other people doing this kind of music. And um, so that's what happened. And I, again, you got to give Tooth & Nail a lot of credit for them picking yeah. up, you know, for a couple of records and distributing it. And then, um, you know, but like a lot of those things, none of those things were, you know, are commercial successes, you know? Yeah. And uh, so that was kind of the story behind that, but it was, you know, it was something fun to do. And uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed this the few years that I, that I did it, but I'm probably not much of a label owner as, as an artist, I was a little more devoted to my own craft than I was, you know, I mean, I, I put, I put a lot of heart and soul into the label, but um, there's definitely better guys to do that than me for sure. You know, so yeah. Is John running it now or did, was he doing the, the last few years that uh, it was putting out releases? John, John who? Sonnenberg. No, John, uh, John never owned it. It's, um, it was, uh, I sold it to, um, I sold it to a guy in 2005 and then he sold it to, uh, two guys, David Barnhart and Jacob Graham from the drums, um, a few years ago. So they, they took it over. Uh, they're not doing too much with it right now. So it's, it's lying a little dormant, but they, but they took it over and tried to revitalize it and they've, they've done some good work with it. But like I said, it's kind of, it's laying low right now. So yeah, it's been, it's been through some changes yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. I know people have had issues with tooth and nail and with, with Brandon mm. for, for various reasons, but like from your perspective, I, that he's put out so many of your records when you, you were probably not the best-selling artist on the label was it kind of a that friendship from the early days or like a, was he always just like if you have a record we'll put it out yeah it was probably both uh, you know the thing is it's like a lot you know the music industry works like like most things it's it is a who you know opposition mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and um you know i can't speak for some of the um some of the challenges maybe the other artists had at tooth and nail and i'm not yeah, yeah. affirm or discount those things. <laughs> Honestly, I, I only have my own experience with it. And, um, and we had, you know, I had a good experience. Um, and I think it was based on a little bit more of a friendship with Brandon. And, and I think he just, I, I think he had a heart for the music. He, he knew it wasn't going to be a big seller. Um, and everything wasn't, I, everything wasn't about sales for Brandon to be yeah. quite honest. I mean, he had artists that did really well, which by the way, were good for artists like my brother and I who did not sell that many records yeah. and they helped support our output. Um, so it was, um, you know, it allowed Brandon to, to have some really, really creative artists on his roster that because he had certain artists that did so well commercially he could afford to to pour some money into artists that he knew wouldn't, but he thought it was worthy and viable and important to do that. So I just, I appreciate that, yeah. you know, um, how, we were really well supported and, um, you know, um, he definitely lost, he definitely, he definitely spent way more money on us than he ever <laughs> gained. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I made more money off my project than Brandon ever did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, pre- I'm really grateful to him for that over the years, you know, but, you know, again, uh, Brandon was one part businessman, one part super music fan. And yeah. I even think a little bit of Brandon was, you know, he was, there was like an artist inside of him. Yeah. He, 
he recognized those things. And that's why, you know, uh, that's why you did see bands like Danielson come out and Joy Electric and, you know, Luxury and, and Fine China. And some of these artists were, you know, I don't know how many labels uh, in, in our particular scene yeah. would have really given those, those bands, you know, much, much, uh, much time. What was the driving factor behind some of the the side projects you've done over the year, whether it was Shepard or Ronald of Orange? Was it uh, wanting to do something more traditional or trying to see if there's a lane for you in a different genre? Yeah, I think I think all of that. I think that describes it pretty well. Um, Shepard was a really interesting thing in that it really that was not really what the record was supposed to be. And it just kind of morphed mm. into the really lo-fi thing and, um, you know, was not received very well at all. Um, and I think Ronald of Orange was just, I wanted to do something with Jeff. And I said, what if, you know, what if we just, I, you know, I come up with a different name and, um, you know, I want to do something that's kind of, you know, like Joy Electric, but without all the, you know, a little more of the super electronic, you know, robotic nature of it. And, uh, you know, a little more of stereo lab influence, um, which is what that was more than anything. And, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just some, you know, you're working on a project that's been going on for years and years, and then you have an idea for something else and it just creates some new energy and enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, and it kind of allows you to return to your main project, I think with a little more, enthusiasm so it's almost like taking a break and then being able to come back to things more than anything else but yeah yeah was it kind of similar with the fox glove hunt yeah gosh yeah that that might be a little bit different in the sense that um i was rob and i had wanted to do a project together for a long time and um and i just you know rob's voice um he just has such a great voice and I have a very, very limited vocal range. And um, so I always thought, hey, it would be really fun to do something where I didn't have to sing. I could just do music. And we could almost, you know, I think I, I think if it would have gone, the project would have gone further. We, I envisioned it like a Morrissey Marr kind of a scenario where I just delivered him musical tracks. Yeah. And he wrote lyrics and melodies over it, which we did for a few songs, mm-hmm. which I think turned out, we, we really loved the way those turned out too. So I think, there was that potential there. Um, and it was just something really fun to where it was like, let's do something that definitely evokes, you know, a lot of those early eighties records we liked, yes. um, but has, has a ton of energy and is really pop. And so, you know, kind of a fine China meets, meets joy thing, but, but even a little more focused. Yeah. You know? um, and to let's make a record where every song sounds like a single, you know, every song, there's no filler. Yeah. At least that's what we felt like. I mean, obviously anybody's free to disagree with that. But um, so that that's what Foxglove Hunt was. And um, I would have loved to have seen what we would have done on a, on a second record. And maybe someday we will. What led to you uh, kickstarting Dwarf Mountain Alphabet? Mm. That was Jason. Jason. Oh yeah. Um, I hadn't even heard of Kickstarter. <laughs> I was at just a weird point. Um, we had relocated to Ohio. We'd been here a couple of years, and um, my studio was kind of lying a little dormant. And uh, I had a bunch of songs that I'd had for probably about two or three years. And so I, all the songs on Dwarf, I just had had those songs. And um, Jason said, hey, there's this Kickstarter thing. He's all, we're doing a Kickstarter thing. I said, really? I go, what is it all about? And he kind of explained it to me. 
And I said, well, maybe we'll give it a shot. It'll kind of motivate me to mm -hmm. independent record. And so we did it and we did it. And uh, I say, we, I, I did it and I did it. And um, it, yeah, that record was just about getting these songs. I wanted to make, um, I wanted to make just the most simple, easy to listen to poppy, you know, joy electric record that I could because the songs really lent themselves to that. And so there's not a lot of diversity or variety on the record. Um, but I just wanted to do something that had these, just these kind of these ultra catchy, you know, kind of pop moments on it. And uh, yeah, there's, there's really, it's a, I, I think in the end it, you know, the, the record lacks a little pizzazz for me, but um, it was what I had in the moment. It was, a, it was, yeah. it was making a moment at a time when I really shouldn't have been making a record. And, um, <laughs> So you look back now and you go, oh, I, I'd sure love another crack at some of those songs, you know, yeah. um, just production wise and stuff. But um, but yeah, um, but it was it was it was something that just sort of came out of nowhere. People weren't expecting it and it happened. And then, um, yeah, there it is. What led to said fantasy and doing something under a different name, but in the same musical genre? Yeah, I know that's where things start to get a little complex and overlappy. <laughs> you know, um, said fantasy was, um, you know, with Joy Electric, there's there's such a history and a in in some ways a baggage. You know, with if you put out a Joy Electric album, there's an expectation, yeah, or what it's supposed to sound like. And I just, I just always wanted to do something, um, you know my whole one of my great loves in terms of electronic music is just you know can you do you know a lot of these old records were like a drum part and a bass line and a vocal and i and i always wanted to make music like that you know like 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 to call it minimalist is almost not doing it any sort it's like it's like a minimalist's minimalist record yeah. right and so i really wanted to do something like that and that's all said fantasy was was like let me have a drum part a bass line and maybe one other sound and so if i had a four track tape recorder um i could do the whole thing and um and so that that's really all that was and i think it was again it was one of those things where it's making records at a time when um i'm just sort of doing it in the margins and i'm, I'm i probably shouldn't i probably shouldn't be making a record um but i had enough interest uh, just barely to do something. I'd been wanting to do something like that for a long time. And so, you know, I had these songs and just sort of did them and, you know, reunited with plastic music, the new, you know, incarnation of plastic and they were interested in it. And that was it just a really low key thing that I think, you know, not too many people heard. And, um, and that was that. like like pressure when releasing music or or like something like said fantasy that just like it goes up it's available on Bandcamp. um i don't even think it's on spotify maybe it is but like it's just there for people you can release music at your leisure when you want like is that freeing for you or is it terrifying <laughs> no it's never been terrifying for me i i think for something like said fantasy i knew that 
the fan base wasn't going to connect with it well. Okay. So there was something, it was so minimal. I dropped my voice a, a couple of registers. Yeah. So, I, and I knew it wasn't, it, it just wasn't what people want to hear. I think when they want to hear new material from me. So there, I, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that caused me fear and trepidation. It was just more of like, well, I almost feel bad because I'm putting out something that I know is not going to be received well. And it's, you know, it, it wasn't even going to be promoted well. So it was a very obscure kind of a thing. And um, so it was, it was more of something, it was, it was more of a mindset that was like, should I be spending time on this? Should I be concentrating on something that's going to at least cater uh, to, you know, the last 20 years of, you know, the fan base. And, um, and I, I knew that wasn't it, but it was something I wanted to get out of my system. But no, I, I don't, I don't really have too much of that. Um, I, I really, I love releasing stuff and I, and I'm, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not, I've never been, I have, I'm very thick skinned when it comes to reviews and that comes from getting so many mountains of bad reviews, yeah. <laughs> you know, over the years, especially with the Christian press. Yeah. You know, there came a time around robot rock to, to white songbook where there was finally this turn where Christian press was like, they, they realized that they were going to look like they weren't in the know anymore if they, if yeah. they badly reviewed my record. So I started getting all these crazy, amazing reviews, you know, um, by guys that three years earlier would have said, Oh, this is rubbish, you know, kind right. of thing. But I got to tell you, you know, one of the interesting things is that I, I never minded. I, I enjoy um, critical reviews. I, I don't even mind bad reviews. I, I, I actually, I actually find them far more compelling to read than like glowing reviews. Yeah. Because I love hearing people just say, oh, this is ridiculous. And what is he trying to say here? And this sounds horrible. And his vocals are flat and the chorus and the song. And I, I kind of get a kick out of it because I don't take it so personal. And um, so, um, so yeah, not, not, not a lot of fear. I'm just really hoping that there's some people that will enjoy it. And yeah. you know, when you hear from people that are, you know, usually it's privately you hear from people that that contact you and or, you, you know, you read some reviews. Um, I yeah, it, there's a joy in that, you know, people just enjoying the work for sure. That's cool. Well, people people get very geeked up anytime you mention the possibility of working on music and you you quietly, not so quietly announced on Twitter, you have a new record you're going to release this year. Yeah, September. Enjoy Electric or is this going to be under your own name? Yeah, this will be uh, this will be my first quote unquote solo, solo album. Huh? Sense that it's it's just under my name. Yeah. So I did all the production on it, like I like I've always done, but it'll be a Ronnie Martin release. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. How does this differ from what you've done previously? Well, it's interesting because to describe it, it, it wouldn't sound like it's much differently, yeah. much different. But the, but it really, you know. It really is in, in kind of the approach I took for the kinds of sounds I use. So I, I made some, I, I put out some ground rules and I, I kind of gathered some influences, you know, in regards to some records that, you know, some, 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 some records stylistically that I, that I really wanted to make a record that was more influenced by those. And um, so I really wanted to, um, I really wanted to go. I really wanted to go back to using some really early '80s kind of drum machine sounds. You know, I hadn't done that. I've always created the sounds from scratch on the mode. Yeah. I think that kind of a sound. I wanted a little more like uh, intricate drum programming. Um, I wanted the synths to be very, very big and wide and very cinematic and ethereal, almost like a like an ambient record. Okay. So, um, so it's polyphonic. It's not monophonic. You know. So there's all all kinds of all kinds of stereo field you know, kind of sounds kind of yeah. moving all over the place in and out. Um, a lot of effects. Um, I've always been really minimal with effects. I was very maximal with effects. And, um, you know, I just, I really wanted to make a, a very, very big sounding record. My records have always been kind of a little, you know, kind of shrunk down. They're a little, they're a little small in some ways. And that's the monophonic nature of those synths. Um, but I wanted to make a big stereo record. And so it was, it was about, you know, listening to bands like Talk Talk, and, you know, Peter Gabriel, you know, these these big sort of overblown records from the early 80s or like Lamal or like Kaja Gugu, you know, these yeah. sort of over the top records where um, they, they sound silly in some ways, but they're really produced. Yeah. And so I wanted something really more well produced and 
and more polished um, and that had a lot of energy to it. And so that's the record really came out how I envisioned it. And um, so in that sense, I think it will uh, you'll you'll be able to hear, you know, you'll you'll be able to hear those. I think, you know, those those Ronnie isms all over the record. You know, certainly my melodic range has not expanded. As I, <laughs> so the, those melodies that I've always I've always sang, I, I'm singing, you yeah. know, I, I stick to that pretty uh, ferociously. Um, I'm one of those people that believes there's only so many good songs and good chord changes and you got to stick to the same ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I stick to the same ones. So it's, there's a lot of like reliability, right? You're, um, but it really, um, it, it really turned out well. And I think um, it's going to sound familiar, but then also kind of breathe, you know, some fresh air into anything that I've done over the last probably 12 years, 13 years, it's going to be a total departure in that sense. Cool. And, uh, so I'm really excited, really excited for it. So hey, you said September. Yeah, September. That's awesome. Do you know who you're doing it with? Or are you going to self-release or can you say now? I don't... <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not self-releasing. It's coming out on a label and I'll, okay. just, I'll leave it at that because right. I want them to do all the promotion for it. I don't, they wanted to wait. Awesome. I'm just, I don't know. I'm probably saying too much right now, but that's all right. Uh, we'll, we'll drop it then. That's what just, I'm just saying. tease it out there and just tease yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. What uh, got you into ministry? Well, you know, I've been in, before we moved to Ohio, it's about 15 to 20 years ago. I started just, um, I was just getting more heavily involved in the local church that I was in. And, um, you know, because I was a music guy, they brought me into, um, they tried to get me to do worship stuff. And I just, I, I didn't know how to do that. So I, yeah. so they brought me in and had me start doing sound stuff and, and so it was just sort of a very slow path into before I knew it, I was just working really heavily with my local church and I'm over the sound team now. And, and I'm over the, I'm, you know, I got the choir director and I got the, you know, it was more of a traditional church and, you know, then I'm now look, I'm leading worship now. So I, so I just slowly kind of got into all of these, these ministry avenues uh, related to, you know, music and worship and before I knew it, I was just, I was totally in it and immersed. And even at that time, I'm still, you know, writing and doing Ronald of Orange and Joy Electric stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm still going out on, you know, probably two weekends a month playing out. <laughs> so I was, it was just a lot of stuff. And I really felt like at that time that, that God was, he was doing something unique. He was kind of pulling me a little out of the music stuff. Um, some of those things were winding down a little bit anyway, thankfully. And um, it looked like he was opening a door and clearing a path into ministry. So um, it just happened, you know, somewhat organically and naturally, you know, by his leading. And, and I just just kind of kept walking down that path. I mean, pretty reluctantly at first, to be quite yeah. honest. And um, but, you know, I kept seeing these doors opening and the doors were opening due to my music past the opportunities and so it just felt like the sort of the logical next step. And then, you know, kind of led into, you know, like I said, the next 15 years and here I am now. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's cool. You, you wrote a book, you podcasting, you do it all. Well, you know, it just, it's funny, the ministry stuff and the music stuff, it's, it's so overlaps because it's led to all these other, you know, opportunities, mm -hmm. you know, like, being able to get in, uh, you know, a publishing agent and, you know, writing books and learning how that whole thing works with yeah. kind of like the music industry, but slightly different in some <laughs> unique way. Yeah. Um, but kind of the same. And then, um, yeah, the podcasting thing, I don't know. I, you know, just getting roped into this podcast called the happy rant. Um, I'm not really roped in, I got invited in, but nothing I was looking to do. And just something that is, you know, it's it's something fun and enjoyable. And then, yeah, this started a new podcast uh, last year um, related to pastoring. I, I don't know. There's there's real there's too much stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it all it all inter it's all sort of interweaving and overlapping to me. There's there's artistic elements to all of it, and I think just all of my time making records. It, this feels like this feels attached in some ways, even though it's not, but it is to yeah. me. You know, it's just, it's, it's just the art of creating things and making new things. And um, so I like having different avenues of doing that, even if it's not always related to music, you know? Yeah, that's cool. 
I um I appreciated your tweet the other day, dear pastor. It's okay if you can't seem to fit that Wanda Vision quote into your sermon. <laughs> so I will ask this as a getaway question: Have you been watching Wanda Vision? Yeah, it sounds like I'm killing Wanda Vision, but I've watched the entire series. It's phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, and it, I think for me, it's um, <laughs> I, I make fun of the guys that geek out too much on it, but uh, maybe that's you, Brian. Sorry. Oh, it is. Uh, it's okay. I'm not really a Marvel guy. Yeah. So <laughs> when I step into something like Wanda, I'm missing so many pieces. Yeah. And I, I think I would have a greater appreciation for it if I understood the back history and some of the pieces that go into it, but I don't, yeah. I'm coming in blind. And so I'm constantly <laughs> offending all of my friends who are just like, they're just going like just haywire for it. Thanks for listening to As the Story Grows. Our theme song was written and composed by the legendary Bob Nana. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give the show a rating and review. If you'd like to support the show financially, click on the Patreon link at asthestorygrows.com. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on social media with your friends. Much appreciated, and thanks for listening. What's that word?